God, death, and love. And pretty much that's how the books break down. God's really active, and we see him working in Joshua, and there's a whole lot of death and suffering and darkness and judges. And we get to Ruth, and it's, it's not all pretty, but it's largely a story of love. So uh, maybe we can end the semester with a smile. Even me. And uh, we're going to start our, our series here in Ruth in chapter 1 today. But we need to know as we start, you'll see it right away, that we've not left the book of Judges completely. The first verse says, when the judges ruled. That means, this is a love story, yes. But man, this is a love story smack dab in the middle of the darkness. It's still a, this is not a comedy. This is still a a tale of tragedy and and a dark period and a hard time. But what Ruth's going to do is take us down to the micro ground level. And the question is what we're going to see there. Is it going to be beautiful? Is it going to be hard? Or are we going to see God at work? And I'm going to read chapter 1. Feel free to follow along up there behind me. And let's read. Here we go. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you may become that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, and go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem 
at the beginning of the barley harvest. I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Uh, Great Father, we pray you be kind uh, to us and show us great things in your word. In our tiredness, in our stress, in our worry, and in our pain, we pray, Lord, that you would lift us up and help us to see your greatness and your goodness and press your good news into our hearts. We ask these things in your name. Amen. In uh, 1986, David Lynch, really well-regarded filmmaker, uh, produced and released a movie called Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet begins, uh, the first two minutes are a a slow-motion montage of 1950s suburban America and all its you know, pristine greatness, if you will. Matriarchal crossing guards, white picket fences, perfectly trimmed lawns. But about a minute in, uh, his camera pauses on a, on a stout man, fat man, uh, older man, um, watering his perfect lawn. And, the, you know, the first hint that things aren't right. The lawn is leaking and the, and, the, and the garden hose has a kink in it. And as he pulls on the hose to get the kink out, he suffers some kind of seizure and collapses to the ground. And his dog begins snapping at the water that's just sort of sprouting into the air. And it's almost comedic, actually. But at that moment, uh, the, 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 the filming slows and the music changes. And it has this ominous feel. And at this point, the, uh, the camera descends. It goes past the man into the grass, down into the darkness, beneath this pristine neighborhood, until it reaches the deep, dark realms that are never exposed to the sun. And there we see and hear a world of of turmoil and pain, a place of beetles forever devouring and being devoured. That's where he takes us. And uh, Wade Bradshaw, a Christian thinker, in his book on cynicism, says that the opening of this film captures the very essence of cynicism. That it doesn't refuse that there's a good world that we can see, but instead, cynicism is the conviction that underneath, beneath everything, beneath the appearance of good, there's the fundamental reality of darkness and despair and evil and selfishness. The cynic would say there's no ultimate meaning, or purpose, or good, and that this is just the way it is. That's the truth. Well, tonight, as we look at our story, we don't have 1950s suburbia. There's no, like, pristine gardens at, you know, and lawns here. Um, but this is supposed to be a love story. And what we find instead is loss and pain and bitterness. And as we and Naomi poke underground in her story, we have to face the same kind of questions. What's under the appearance? What really is underneath all the things? She's wondering, and I think it's fair for us to wonder along with her, is there anything good left for me? Is there anyone or anything at work underneath all these things that give me any reason for hope? I know you're young, and I know you're supposed to be optimistic. But I also know you occasionally ask these questions. Is there really a reason for me to be optimistic? To have hope. Will, will my life be good? What will it be like? And I know at times these questions pop up and often enough you sort of kick them away and laugh at yourself for being silly. But I also know that some of you have suffered some significant losses in your life and recently that make you question, is God good? And is there a reason to be hopeful? And as we poke beneath the surface here in Ruth chapter 1, 
in the midst of real loss, in the face of cynicism, what we're going to see is there's really a good reason to hope in the steadfast love of the Lord. Okay? In the midst of real loss, there's reason for hope in Jesus' steadfast love. So we're going to talk about great loss and a loss of hope and a love that loses. All right? So first, uh, the great loss. And when you, when you start reading this text, and I don't know if you've ever read this book. I read like the first 100 pages and basically said, that's enough of that. It sort of feels like the grapes of wrath. You know, everyone's starving and it's dusty and we have to leave here and it sucks. And you load up the wagon and start traveling. And I'm like, all right, I know where the suffering is going here. And that's the way this story seems to start. Uh, we have a family here uh, that are experiencing loss. They're still at home, but there's famine in the land. And uh, this is, I mean, I was fairly poor at times growing up, but I don't ever remember being hungry, like, like substantially hungry over a long period of time. Like, I'm always hungry, but, yeah, not starving. And uh, what is that like as a parent in a family to have sustained hunger, to wonder if your children may starve? That's the kind of reality of suffering in the midst of your home that makes you do things, desperate things like, we have to get out of here. And that's what happens. They, they leave. The irony here, of course, and I'm sure there are like a thousand ironic jokes, is they live in Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. You know, we live in the house of bread, and we're all going, I'm going to shut up. I'm going to punch you if you tell that stupid joke one more time. And, uh, and they have to leave. They're desperate. They're so desperate, they move to Moab. And you don't know much about Moab. It's not as cool as Moab, Utah. Um, maybe... Maybe is inhospitable in some ways because they have a long history of animosity. It's not the kind of place you would go unless you felt like you had to. But in verse 2, the whole family, Elimelech, Naomi, Melon, and Chilion, they pick up and they relocate. And uh, they begin to experience the loss of their home. They, they're leaving their town. They're leaving where they're from. And this was not a transient society like ours where, you know, your grandparents may have lived across the ocean or in some other city. No, they're leaving their family's land. They're leaving a place where everyone knows them. They're leaving their place of security, their place of history. And they're, they're going to be refugees in an unknown, semi-hostile foreign land where they have to find work. Some of you know that my wife's an immigrant. And uh, when, when they found that they were coming to the States, most of her family were ecstatic. They were this was no opportunity. They would have religious freedom here. Uh, their kids could get an education. These were all things that were denied them to some extent under the Soviet rule as Christians. But my mother-in-law, even though life was really, really, really hard for her in the Soviet Union, she worked like 18-hour days and never had a lot of security, she mourned. She mourned for years because she left her home. She left her family. She left everything she knew. And when someone here in the States asked her, for her first Christmas, what can we get you to make you feel better? She said, a guitar. And what she did was she took her guitar and went to the bathroom and sang sad songs to herself for years because she had lost her home. She had lost everyone she ever knew. She was surrounded by strangers, and they had to make a hard life, a hard new life together. Um, but, you know, it's easy to think in situations like this, and perhaps she thought this too, my my mother-in-law, she maybe thought, well, it can't get much worse than this. And you should never say that. It's an ignorant statement. Because perhaps as they, they move to Moab, they think, it can't get much worse than this. But it does. They completely lose what makes a home. They, they lose most of the family members. All the men in the family die. By the end of verse 5, husbands and sons are all gone, and this woman's left 
with just her daughters-in-law, who are Moabites. And uh, thankfully, this is not a pain I'm familiar with firsthand. But I've had others, friends and associates, who've lost children, and they've told me there's nothing in this world that hurts like this. There's nothing in the world that hurts like losing a child. Um, Here's why I want to talk about you a little bit and and invite you to think that... You you may be thinking, well, I probably don't have much in common with an ancient Israelite uh, woman who moved to Moab. And that's maybe true. But, But I think you actually may have more in common than you think. Consider this especially freshmen on this one. Some of you have left home, and you did it willingly. But this does not feel like home. And you may feel the pressure to act like everything's fine, and you have a few friends. But man, do you miss home. And and you feel like you're an adult now, so you're not supposed to let people know how much it hurts that you're not home. Like, that's what kids do at camp. I'm not homesick. Listen, don't ever be embarrassed or ashamed. That, that you miss home. It's, it's a beautiful, good thing that you love your place and you love your family. So don't ever be ashamed of that. It, it's, that's, a, that's what I would call a good hurt. And uh, I, I wish that we all missed home a little bit more than we do. It'd probably be a good thing. God made us for a place and made us to love our families. Uh, secondly, uh, I, I know for a fact, this is always true, but it's even more apparent right now, that, that some of you are feeling the pain of, of mourning, of, of, of the deep loss of, of young friends, that some of you experienced loss. And yeah, you don't have children, but there are people like you. They're, they're way too young to have died. And uh, I've been in that situation. And, I, and I'm sorry uh, that this has happened. I, I know it's awful. And I know what it looks like. You, you, you mourn uh, as you think about all the good times you had together, you mourn the loss of those. Uh, you won't be having those again. You, you mourn the, the loss of potential of all the good times you had looked forward to and know you, you won't be able to have that. You're, you're wondering how in the world this happened to this person. And, uh, and you're in pain. And I don't have anything to say to make that better for you. Uh, you, you need to know that this is not the way things are supposed to be. You need to know that if you're angry, you have every right to be. Um, when Jesus lost a really good friend, you can go look at this account. John chapter 11, he stood outside of his tomb, and John tells us he was angry. He was moved to tears, sadness, but he was also angry. Because death is an enemy. It's part of the world that's not supposed to be this way. And if you've experienced loss recently and, and you're angry and you're confused, it's okay. I mean, we can talk about it. But don't feel bad about it, that you're angry, because death's an enemy. Well, Ruth has experienced a lot of death, and it sort of raises the question, whose story is this? What kind of story is this? Uh, maybe we thought it was a family story or a Elimelech story, but, but by a tragic process of elimination, it seems like the only person left for it to be is Naomi. This is Naomi's story, and it's a story of loss. And um, the question then is, uh, is it going to be like this? Is, it, is there going to be a positive turn? And, and there will, but what you need to know is there's more loss, actually. What we see next is the loss of hope. In, in verse 6, 
the text tells us that she arises and returns because she's heard good news that God, it seems, has finally visited Israel. In other words, they have food. And it, it should make the careful reader ask the question like, oh, despite all the loss, does, uh, does Naomi still have hope? And, and the answer is yes, she has hope for food. But for herself, she does not have hope. She does not have hope for herself. And uh, in fact, she says at the end of her account, which I read earlier in verse 20, you know, her name, Naomi, means pleasant. Um, I assume she actually fit that description at some point. But when she comes back, everyone that knows her like, hey, Pleasant's back. And she said, don't, don't call me Pleasant. Call me bitter. Because she's become a bitter person. What, uh, we know what happened to her. We know what happened to her. She lost everything, it seems. Here's my question. What happened in her? What happened in her to make her so bitter? How did she get this way? We see as they return, they, they're all heading back. The Moabites, of course, these, these daughters-in-law have never been to Judah. They're following their mother-in-law because uh, they, they want to eat food. It seems like, okay, there's food there. Let's go back there now. Um, it seems that Naomi can have hope for them. In verses 8 and 9, uh, in the midst of their return to Judah, um, she begins to urge her daughters-in-law to, to go back to Moab. You know, this is like the in-car, we're in the car on the way. And we're having the discussion we should have had before we left. Okay. No, you should go back. You know. And, uh, and, and she has hope for them, see in verse 8, that God will bless them, that God will deal kindly with them and grant them rest. And uh, what she wants for them is real security. Don't, you don't want to live with like me, like an old barren woman looking for work, trying to fend off starvation for the rest of their life. You don't have to live this way. Maybe God will be kind to you. Go back. She has hope for them. A genuine belief, it seems, that God could be gracious to these two Moabites. But she does not seem to have hope for herself. You read along in verses 11, 12, and 13. She continues to urge them to return. They, they don't want to hear it. And she tells them in verse 12, like, hypothetically, if, if I should have hope for myself. And she carries out the argument to make the point, like, it's absurd. It's absurd. Like what you're hoping for, putting your trust in me, it's, it's, it's absurd. There's no reason that I should have hope because she's convinced that God's against her. That's the phrase she uses. The Lord is against me. So she has hope for them, but not her. And the hope she has for them is sort of reasonable. She explains them, you know, to them like, hey, look, you can go back to Moab, be, be taken back into your mother's homes, and, and find some nice Moabite men and, and marry, and you'll be taken care of there. And she says in eleven twelve, why would you go with me? It's absurd. And she, uh, she's just trying to get to the heart of why in the world would they follow her. She's a barren old woman. You, there's no life with me, ladies. I'm not going to magically get pregnant and then you're going to wait 20 years for my sons to be mature so you can marry them again, are you? Are you, are you marrying on the, the, the train of loss? Are you just going to be old, hungry spinsters with me for the rest of your lives? That's what she's saying. It's unreasonable to put your hope in me. Why don't you be smart and reasonable and go back to Moab and, and find yourself some men? 
because it's unreasonable to think that there's any hope for me. And as she talks, and the more she talks, um, it becomes clear that Naomi's really bitter. She's, she's angry. She, uh, she says in verse 13, as sort of a summary to all this, ladies, it's, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that God's against me, that the hand of the Lord is against me. She's convinced that God is against her and has given up on her, and that he's the reason behind her losses and her crisis. And in 20 and 21 at the end, she sort of sums this all up. This is what happened. I went away full, I came back empty. God dealt bitterly with me. He dealt bitterly with me. And that's why I'm bitter, because he made me bitter. So in summary, I think Naomi's really convinced that there's hope for them. There's a reasonable hope for them, but there's no hope for her. Are any of you like that? Are any of you wired that way? You, you look at others and say, I can imagine, actually, all your potential. I can imagine you actually being happy. I can imagine you having joy. I can imagine you having a happy family. I cannot imagine those things for myself. I cannot imagine God being really good to me. Are any of you wired that way? Are any of you wired like her? Here's the question we need to ask. We need to ask it. This is not the best time to ask it, but it's the only time to ask it. I'll explain in a moment. Is she right? Now, we're going to answer her. I'm going to ask the question, is she right? And I'm going to answer it, so stick with me. But I do want to say this before I do this. Generally speaking, when someone is in deep grief and loss, you don't want to ask if they're right and wrong and begin to argue with them, okay? This is not, what I'm about to do right now is not how you should treat people in grief, okay? You, you shouldn't. Um, there's other things we should do, and then maybe you get the right later to, 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 to deal with the nuts and bolts of what's going on in their heart and mind. But this is not how you should necessarily counsel someone that's in, in deep loss, but we do have to ask the question, is she right, and, and, uh, and then answer it. Uh, so here we go. Here's my effort to do so. Has God singled her out? She thinks God's against her. He's put his hand on me and made me suffer. Has God singled her out? And the answer is no. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us something really important, that there was a famine in the land. And that may not mean much to you besides, like, sometimes there's not rain and people get hungry. But for God's people, and this is Israel, this is God's land in the house of bread. When famine comes, this is one of God's promises. It means because God has given them one of his covenant curses. You can go look at this in Deuteronomy 20-something. 20, 20? No. Leviticus 28 for sure. So uh, when there's a famine in the land, God's people are supposed to stop and say, God promised he would take care of us. And he promised, he promised us if we went astray, he would afflict us to make us stop and examine ourselves and return back to him. And this is a famine. They're supposed to stop and examine themselves and return back to him. Um, did they do that? That's the second question. Is, is Naomi, as she returns in verse 6, is she returning to the Lord like she was supposed to do? Or is she running? You see, in chapter 1, verse 1, when the famine came, the people of Israel were supposed to stop and self-examine and ask themselves, are we, are we astray from the Lord? Yes, we should repent and turn back to Him because He is good, His mercies are new, He'll forgive us, 
and replenish us and be kind to us. That's not what they do. They don't stay. They don't repent. What do they do? They do the practical thing and they run for the hills where there's good food and grass. And in some ways it makes sense, but it is not what they're supposed to do. They run away. And what is she doing now? Is she returning, repenting, or is she running? And, uh, you know, I'm not making this stuff up. The book of Isaiah talks about this really clearly. God looks at his people over history and says, it's, it's, not, that, it's not that hard, guys. And, and returning and rest is your deliverance. And, and repentance, that's being honest with me about your failures and entrusting me, resting in me. That is your salvation. But you would have none of it. You will flee. That's what the book of Isaiah says about God's people. And that's what they did then. And that seems to be what she's doing now. She's just running again. And you see that when we think about what's her hope. Where's her hope for rest? Uh, There doesn't seem to be much hope she has for herself. We talked about that. But even for her daughters, she's somewhat hopeful the Lord may bless her. But when you start following her reasoning, her reasoning, her reasoning, and it's pretty complex because the human heart's a mess, frankly. We all have mixed motives. She seems to be saying this. Maybe God will bless you if you go back to Moab and marry some of those pagan Moabite husbands. Because the closer you get to Israel and to Israel's God, the more risky it is. I mean, her practical consideration is it's probably better for you with pagan Moabite husbands in that land than it is to come under God's direct care with God's people in the house of bread. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Instead of drawing near to the Lord and to his people, returning with me to Israel, where the God of heaven has promised to be good to his people. She says, no, I actually think it'd be better for you to run away back there and do the practical thing and marry those guys and get a good job and just live in those tents and nice houses. That's her practical hope for them. That is not repentance. That's not rest. That's running away. That's actually how her family got in the situation to begin with. They did not stop and ask, have I gone astray from the Lord? Do I, need, do I need to seek his forgiveness? They just ran for the greener pastures. And her argumentation works, by the way. Verse 14, one of the sisters, one of the daughters-in-laws, like, with tears, and I don't want to make this sound like this was not hard. I'm sure this was hard for all of them. It was a very emotional car ride, I'm sure. Um, they, uh, one of them goes back, returns. She ditches her mother-in-law. And her sister-in-law and goes back and tries to start that brand new life of hers. And, um, and, and here we would applaud that as uh, a brave thing to do. Uh, I, I actually think we're maybe supposed to lament it as uh, abandoning her family. Here's my question for you at the end of all this. I know, I know you have the internal pull to do what's best for you. Because we all do. It's part of being human. It's part of being selfish by nature. We have a pull in our hearts to seek what's best for us. And you live in a culture surrounded by family and friends that constantly tell you to do the pragmatic, practical thing that's best for you, to look out for yourself. And uh, you sometimes wrestle, therefore, especially if you're a Christian, with, should I do this or that? Should Should I do this mission trip or should I take this class? Should I pursue this career with its loss of security and money? Or should I pursue that career with its promise of security and money? And I know you have competing voices in your hearts and in your ears from your family and others. 
you're asking, and you're being forced to ask, sometimes by your parents and others, should you really be doing this on a Thursday night or a Sunday morning when you have so much studying to do? And I want you to know I'm not going to answer a single one of those questions for you. Pretty much never, actually. I'm not going to answer those questions for you. Here's what I want you to do. I do want you to ask yourself, where do I think I will find life? Where do I think I'm going to find life? Is God going to meet me and be kind with me as I run from him to the place of security and seek to do what's best for me? Or in turning to him, even if it means being painfully honest about my failure and trusting and resting in him, will I find the life and joy and peace I'm looking for? There's one last thing we have to ask Naomi and answer. She thinks she's a loser. She says, I went away full. I came back empty. God's been so bitter to me that I am bitter. Call me bitter. And uh, man, that is taking your narrative and swallowing it whole. When you decide to rename yourself after your loss, right? Call me loser is what she's saying. And uh, I would love, again, this is not the way you counsel someone, but I'd like to poke some holes in her story and say, I'm not sure you went away full. And I'm not sure you came back empty. We're not going to do that. Instead, we're simply going to do one thing. As she complains, and she does this in verse 20, this, like, this is her entrance back into town after being gone for years. Her old friends and acquaintances are like, the homie's back. And she's like, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. I mean, literally, she moves in with the rain cloud over her head, pouring on her, and it's, you know, it's re- the worst reintroduction ever. But a careful reader or watcher at that time, she's saying, I went away full, I came back with nothing I, God's been so bitter to me that I'm bitter. I have nothing. I'm a loser. And the, the, the observant person should say, who's that girl? Who is she? Like, you're not empty because there's someone with you. Who's the girl? Because Orpah turned back, but Ruth never did. And what we're going to see in this last uh, point right here is that in Ruth, um, who's been forgotten by Naomi, it looks like, in her complaints right here. God has not given up on her. Let's talk real quickly about a love that loses. Uh, Naomi hopes that God will deal kindly with her daughter-in-laws, including Ruth. Um, I really wonder if she has any idea what she's talking about. Um, Because Naomi has a front row seat to see God's great love in the love of Ruth. And she doesn't even recognize it. She doesn't even see it at this point. It makes me wonder if she even knows what it looks like. Well, here's what it looks like. As we look at Ruth's love real quick, uh, man, I love these characteristics. One is a stubborn love. As, as Naomi again and again tries to reason with them, look, don't hitch your wagon to some old woman that can't have kids. Y'all are crazy. Go back home. Marry some good men. It'll be fine. And in verses 15 and 16, Ruth, this is the first time Ruth really speaks by herself in the text. She says, do not urge me to leave you. See that in verse, do, stop, stop it. Stop trying. I mean, she's respectful, but she's like, shut up, enough. This is stubborn love. I will no longer listen to you about this because I am not leaving. She won't give in to the internal pull to go back or some external push. She's stubborn. She's staying here. And you would see that in verses 16 and 17 with her stick with you love. 
She says, and this is a fairly famous text. It's possible if you've gone to a wedding, you've heard this text somewhere in the service or in the vows. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will. This is not being creepy. This is not stalking. This is stick with you, love. Okay. Uh, Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. This is stick with you, loyal love. The Bible often translates it loyal or steadfast love. Uh, She used the word earlier, Naomi did, about God's love, his deal kindly. It's this really important, we've used it a couple times a semester, word for God's love has said, his covenant love. Simply put, it's not just stick with you love, it's shut up love. Because when, when, not, when Ruth gives it to her, like, I am never leaving you, no matter what, forget about it. Nomi has nothing to say. She literally, in verse 18, she just shuts up. There's, there's nothing I can do in the face of that kind of determination. And I've seen this actually in weddings. Like when I preach a wedding, I know that there are tons of cynical people in the congregation. They, they've, they have gone through it. They have divorced. They are cynical even amidst their marriages. And yet in the face of people making this stick with you love kind of vows, they are forced to shut up because they not only know that it's possible, they know they want it. So stubborn love, stick with you love. Lastly, it's sacrificial. So much so that she takes a vow here at the end of verse 18. May the Lord do so to me and even more so. If anything but death separates us, she takes a what we call a self-imprecatory vow. Like if I, if I break my vow, may God crush me, may he curse me. I'm going to stick with you to the end no matter what. And this means the loss of any of her pragmatic, go do what's best for you kind of dreams. It's the end of her freedom. She's bound herself to a woman who calls herself bitter. You get that? She, she's, she's married herself to suffering in some ways. This is Ruth's love, stubborn, stick with you, sacrificial love, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's a portrait of God's own love. Naomi can use the word, but she doesn't know what it looks like. But Ruth embodies it. And when I said earlier that when someone's suffering, this is not the way you argue with them. The question is then what do you do? And and the best thing you can do is you do what Ruth does. You you, you stick yourself on their hip and you say, I will be here. I am not leaving. I don't know if I can fix a single thing that's broken inside of you, but I will be here with you and for you. The question is where you get the ability to do that. And uh, I, I think, frankly, it, it's pretty amazing. Ruth is a Moabite. She's a foreigner. Somehow she knows the Lord's love and the Lord's love has transformed her and made her like him. We, we love like Ruth by being like Jesus. And we become like Jesus by knowing his love. And just like Naomi can't see this beautiful sacrificial love. She literally doesn't even seem, she's like she's forgot about Ruth. I have to ask you, whether you're Christian or not, can you see his love? Can you see how good and beautiful his love is? Or are you perhaps so busy, so worn down with your losses, maybe even so cynical that you can't see it. It's possible. It's possible that it could be right in front of you, just like it's in front of Naomi, and you can't see it. 
But if that's the case, I, want to, I just want to encourage you, friends. This is a really good week to be that way. It's Easter week. Uh, this is where it becomes clearest to us all what his love is like. That uh, Jesus so loved his people, so loved his friends. We looked at this last year in John 13. That as Jesus was thinking about the cross just days, hours ahead, John 13, 1, John tells us, that Jesus, knowing his time had come, time to die, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the end. And that means he loved them fiercely and he loved them to the very bloody end. He loves his people with a stubborn, stick with you, sacrificial love. That's the nature of Jesus' love for you. Jesus, God, does not give up on his people. No matter what you think about it, no matter how you feel about it, he doesn't give up on his people. He gives himself for his people with a love that loses. All right, I'm going to pray for us. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love and pray that whether it's in the book of Ruth or the events.